0: I'm Alice Gage, editor of the Australian Museum magazine. I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people as the custodians of the land on which the Australian Museum stands. We pay our respects to Aboriginal elders and recognise their continuous connection to country. This is Explore, a podcast that takes you inside Australia's first museum. There are 21.9 million objects and specimens in the museum's collection, and each contains a clue from the past and an answer for the future. Join us on expeditions, in exhibitions, and in the lab as we explore the world of the Australian Museum.
1: No one knows how many units of life, species, organisms are on the planet today. It might be something like 2 million, it might be something like 10 million, maybe even more. And in doing that, the piece of rock
2: came off and he he held it in his hand and looked at it and thought, oh, that that looks like a trilobite.
0: Amory is that big building attached to the Australian Museum in Sydney. And it houses our collections, our labs, and about 100 scientists and researchers. These experts are hard at work investigating Australia's biodiversity and paving the way for conservation efforts. Using DNA, 3D imaging and other techniques, they identify pests, solve wildlife forensic mysteries, and unravel the origins of Australia's unique fauna. They also discover new species. In our final episode of this season of Explore, we're going behind the scenes and into the field to find out how and why new species continue to be added to the annals of life on Earth. The discovery of new species often begins with scientists venturing into remote environments. What you're hearing right now is the CSIRO research vessel investigator motoring across the Indian Ocean in July 2021. The scientists aboard that ship, including five from the Australian Museum, are looking for life on underwater mountains 5,000 metres below the surface.
3: This is a voyage of discovery. We don't actually know what animals are down there yet, so we have to take small sets of samples from the seafloor in order to determine exactly what animals and even microbes are living down there.
0: This is Tim O'Hara from Museums Victoria. He's the chief scientist on the voyage.
3: On our voyage to the um, Indian Ocean Territories, we're deploying quite a few pieces of equipment, and one of the most important is the deep-toed camera. It's essential for us to get a picture of exactly what's on the seafloor. We get some sense of it from the multibeam. We can see larger valleys and hills, but to understand, is it rocky? Is it sandy? What's living there? You know, what sort of fish are around? It's really important to have some visuals on the ground. Not only for science, also for communication. You know, people are really wondering, we're going to create marine parks in these zones. And what does it look like? What what does the deep sea Uh, contain, what sort of animals are there. So the deep toad camera fulfils a lot of those objectives. It tells us scientifically what's on the seafloor, operationally it helps us plan the next uh, deployments and also we can communicate the conservation values of those areas to the Australian public.
0: Expeditions like this not only survey completely unknown habitats, but they provide specimens that scientists can then identify including some that are new to science. A bean trawl is used to scoop up samples from the ocean floor. Scientists then sort and preserve what they find. In this case, it's a range of diverse marine life, including bizarrely shaped sea cucumbers, huge sea stars, blood-red crustaceans, beautiful jellyfish and lots of deep sea worms. This is the heart of the work of our passionate scientists, who, by identifying these creatures, can help protect them. Whoa! Ooh. Wow. Crabby! Oh! <laughs> Yay! Yes.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. There's another one in
2: there, too. He did it. Wow,
0: more, dead. Dead.
1: Oh. 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 more oh. vodka. Yes. Oh. Whoa!
3: That's
0: so cool. He did it. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty amazing.
2: Wow.
0: This
2: is what we
0: wanted, isn't it? The discovery of new species doesn't just happen in the field. It can also happen in the lab by using the Australian Museum's 195-year-old collection of natural specimens.
1: Behind the scenes, in these big natural history museums, they uh, have these decades or even centuries-long traditions of sending out expeditions to explore the natural world.
0: Professor Chris Helgen is the Chief Scientist of the Australian Museum and Director of the Australian Museum Research Institute.
1: Some of the results from those kinds of studies, you know, end up in the galleries and displays, but the grand majority of things that are brought back to document life on Earth and understand it end up behind the scenes in museums like most natural history museums do. We have about a 100 scientific staff behind the scenes whose job is to understand, study, interpret, and continue to look after these collections that uh, serve as Alice the storehouse of the basic understanding of life on Earth.
0: I just wanted to ask you about Natural History Museum collections and the Mm. role that they play in the discovery of new species. Can you talk to me about that?
1: Sure. At the Australian Museum, we have the largest collection, not just in Australia, but in the entirety of the Southern Hemisphere. We have about 22 million specimens and artefacts, most of which are biological specimens. So imagine it. What are we talking about? Thinking about pulling out drawers that have carefully kind of curated and stored, uh, pinned specimens of beetles. You know, beetles from everywhere in New South Wales, everywhere in Australia, places in New Guinea and the Solomon Islands where our scientists have gone maybe 200 years ago even. And so over time, these collections build up. And the other aspect of it is not only do we have these collections, but to study them and to make sense of them. If you really want to get down to how to understand the units of life how many species are they? How are they distributed? You now, which ones are rare? Which ones are endangered? Which ones are threatened even with immediate extinction? What do they do for a living? The answer to those questions comes in solving these puzzles using the material that's been amassed in Natural History Museum collection. So those tens of millions of specimens in our collection and every other uh, are ultimately the uh, storehouse and the solution to making careful comparisons that allow generation on generation scientists to tell apart the different forms of life on our Earth, to carefully document that, to name species, and to ultimately send that information back from the museum into the wider world, the world at large, the rest of the real world. And that information then is what is used in everything that you might want to understand about nature and life on earth. So no one knows how many units of life species organisms are on the planet today. It might be something like 2 million. It might be something like 10 million, maybe even more. You know, we're, we're, uh, we have millions more to try to document. And uh, our team uh, is, is doing that tirelessly, both because we just love this kind of work and it is exciting. And it adds to the store of knowledge that we have about the planet and its conservation
0: So, Chris, as well as heading up uh, AMRI, the Australian Museum Research Institute, you're also a mammologist and that's a scientist that specialises in the study of mammals. You've documented over 100 previously unknown mammals from around the world. Firstly, could you just clarify something really basic for us? Are you discovering species that have been previously overlooked or are you discovering species that are newly evolved?
1: That's a great question, because I think when people hear that term, new species, their mind is sort of fighting inside about what exactly does that mean? It doesn't mean that these species have evolved brand new and we've found them because they're brand new. What we're doing in every single time when we're working with any group of animals, documenting something, giving something a scientific name for the first time, we are diagnosing a unit of life that has been on the planet usually for a million years or so. So they're overlooked species. And that's because the world of biodiversity, the richness of life on our planet is absolutely extraordinary.
0: In 2020 to 2021, the scientists at Amory discovered 218 new species. They include fish, frogs, bats, worms from the bottom of the ocean. And so I'd just like to put a couple to you, and perhaps you can tell us a bit more about them and how they were discovered. If we could start with the majestic red-bodied pipefish, could you describe it for our listeners? and
1: absolutely. Tell us and, how and it while was found. I describe it, those listeners that are able, I encourage you to type into a search engine, red, wide-bodied pipefish. Um, you know, pipefish are seahorse relatives, so they kind of look straight to like a, like a sort of pencil. And about that that size is this gloriously colored new species, brand new, is named a new fish species for Australia this past year. Alice, it's stunning. It, it is It is as red as red can be. Where does it live? It lives on the east coast of Australia. Most unexpectedly, about this fish, Alice, is that when it was described last year, it was documented that this is a reasonably common fish in Botany Bay. So, you know, within uh, the urban confines of Sydney itself, our largest city here in Australia, uh, we have this gorgeous. Um, colorful, stunning new species of seahorse relative, this gorgeous red pipe fish. So, you know, how is it that we get to 2021 in this case with this seemingly conspicuous beautiful animal going without a scientific name? And it's for a variety of things. One is that this is down just a little deeper than what many divers are exploring when they're out there looking you know, and swimming and, and uh, taking pictures of fish and and coral and things along the East Coast of Australia. So it's down a little deeper than, than many people are diving. It camouflages really well against um, some of the, um, the red uh, environment down there. There's different plants, there's different sort of uh, corals, and um, sometimes it's hard to find. But probably the most important thing about this is just this earlier aspect I'm mentioning about, perhaps unexpectedly to many, how little we actually still know about life on Earth, including in the areas around us. How long do you think it's been around for? Oh, well, that that's really interesting. And, you know, how, how do we figure that out? In this case, what our teams did uh, at the museum was look at the DNA of this species, figure out what its most close relative amongst the pipefish was, which is another species of green or brown pipefish that also lives in Australia. So these two are what we call sister species. They're more closely related to each other than any other organism on Earth. If you study how different their DNA is and sort of uh, map that back um, at how long ago they shared a common ancestor, it's something like 12 million years. So this pipefish has been evolving on its own evolutionary path, on its own trajectory, becoming this gorgeous, bright red animal for you know something like 12 million years. And it's only now in the and in the, in the 21st century that we've been clued in to the fact that it's out there.
0: The next species that I'd like to. Um suggest to you, Chris, will be very close to your heart, as you're the one who found it along with your colleagues, the gigantic Yunnan woolly flying squirrel, which is yeah. another gorgeous species.
3: Yeah,
1: it truly is gigantic. It can be uh, well over a metre long from nose to tip of tail. And these are flying squirrels. So this is a species that can open flaps of skin on its side and glide from a higher vantage down to a lower vantage. It's a huge species, and it lives only in parts of the Himalayas. So the first species of woolly flying squirrel was discovered by Western scientists in 1888 from Pakistan and India. And that's really all we've known ever since. It's been kind of a mystery, a question mark as to what is this species all about? You know, we've only had a few specimens sitting in museums and very little uh, study going on in the wild. Even an understanding of how far it might be distributed across uh, Himalayan ecosystems has been largely lacking. What we did last year was published a big paper where we worked with a a range of colleagues in various countries, especially with some of our uh, colleagues in China. And we were able to Document specimens that have been largely overlooked in in museum collections in India, in some of the European museums, and especially in China. And what we found was there were this kind of similar kind of flying squirrel, gigantic, super woolly, soft to the touch, beautiful, cute animal um, that it was found in, in parts of Tibet and all the way over into Southwest China. So major different sections of the Himalayas. And what we found through studying their anatomy and their DNA was that they were quite different species. The one that's in Tibet and the one that's in Southwest China, Yunnan, uh, from the original species that was found in India and Pakistan. So this was a good case of taking a really poorly known animal, very charismatic, very beautiful, but little studied, and just scratching and looking a little bit closer than anyone had at it before. And by doing that and kind of taking an expert eye to it and working with, you know, collaborators who could uh, ferret out where specimens might be in museums that have been overlooked, documented a much more complete understanding of this very rare animal and found that it exists in three different parts of the Himalayas where it exists as three very different species. So, you know, when we name these species, what we're also doing is diagnosing evolutionary history and kind of, you know, placing names on the tree of life as we see it sort of the the family tree of all squirrels here's two major branches sticking out that have been there all along and we'd missed them so far now we know they're there we've given them names and they've entered the wider world now that we've documented them and they're entering things like endangered species lists and conservation sort of management plans. So now that we know they're there, we can work hard to make sure that they're looked after and that their long-term existence is going to be assured.
0: Chris, I've got one more question for you today. What's it like to be a person, a scientist, who has discovered new species?
1: For me, there is no greater thrill. And I can imagine no greater thrill than this. And, you know, even though this is my passion and it's what I'm good at and it's something I've done again and again, but no matter how many we might find every single time, it is a genuine eureka moment. It is a incredible reward to sort of come to the understanding that we really have something in this case that is so distinctive that, you know, science has never given it a scientific name. And to be able to you know, have the privilege of working to to do that and to introduce it to the scientific community is extraordinary. Now, some of these gorgeous species that I've had the pleasure of naming as new to science are not new to everybody. And that's so important for us to think about too, is that what our remote areas to Western science or to us sitting in the museum are the genuine backyards of people from other places. And so, they might be species that have been known in their environments for a very long time. So there's an element of humility that also has to be part of the equation, which is as as thrilling as, as these, quote, discoveries can be. These are, as you say, as we've pointed out, species that have been on our planet for a very long time. And it's in some ways Western science. We're just now starting to learn as a scientific community who they are, what they do, and how we can look after them.
0: That's so true. We're, in a previous episode, we spoke to Sarah Judge, who's in the First Nations team at the Australian Museum, about Burra, the Eel and the significance of the eel to First Nations people. And I suppose that's a good example of of what you're saying, a creature that has been known to different nations along the east coast of Australia for...
1: For a very long time. You no, know, that's a perfect example, Alice. And, and in a way, everything that lives on... You know the land surface of the continent of australia almost everything on this continent was entirely new to scientists when you know europeans first started to explore and learn about this continent simultaneously almost every one of those species would have been so well known to the people who were living on this land and living with those animals and those plants and those landscapes for tens of thousands of years so again Uh, the aspect of of humility and understanding that a discovery is not always uh, a a world first. In this case, what we're talking about is bringing it into the uh, fabric and the system of, of Western science, but these things have been there all along.
0: With each species that becomes known to science, is given a name and has its DNA and characteristics recorded, our understanding of the tree of life expands. The discovery of new species that are fossilised can also help paint this picture.
2: So the picture of ancient life offers us many glimpses into the past. So it offers us a window into the past that previously, without the fossils, we wouldn't be able to know for example, the evolution of life, for how life has changed over time, and how life has changed to things like climate over time, as climate has changed. This is Dr
0: Patrick Smith, a paleontologist at the Australian Museum. You might remember him from episode one. Like everything, climate change is having an effect on the discovery of new species, but in ways scientists couldn't have predicted.
2: Climate change has affected the discovery of new species in multiple ways in paleontology. It's done things like, for example, in Siberia, it's melted permafrost, which has previously been in, unimpenetrable. And so it's made accessible things like mammoths that, for example, previously wouldn't have been able to be accessed by uh, things like uh, drills or your, your other drilling equipment equipment. So climate change has helped in paleontology in Australia by allowing droughts to occur. And as those droughts occur, we get things like, for example, grass dying off or locust plagues. And these actually reduce the height of grass. And grass is a real pain when trying to find fossils because if grass is coming up to your armpits, you can't see fossils. I've been wandering around fields in queensland and not been able to find anything because the grass is so high but when i come back and i'm wandering around those same fields and the grass is down to less than my shoe height then i can see fossils everywhere and i'm struggling to carry fossils back to the car there's just that many of course i don't advocate for climate change as necessarily being a great thing but it's at least helped paleontology in terms of finding fossils in australia
0: In late 2020, Patrick discovered an extremely rare species of trilobite. So wait, what's a trilobite?
2: A trilobite is an extinct group of what we call arthropods. So arthropods are basically the group that includes the spiders, the scorpions, the horseshoe crabs, but also insects, crustaceans, mites, anything that you might think of as a creepy crawly a little bit. These trilobites, they look a little bit like your roly polys that you might find in your garden, or what are sometimes called woodlass or slaters. Some people think they look a little bit like cockroaches. I don't think they look as much like cockroaches as some people say. They're not the earliest fossils that we find, but they're some of the earliest fossils that we find. So they're very primitive organisms.
0: This particular trilobite fossil had actually been in the Australian Museum collection since 1997 but no-one until this point realised how significant it was. It was found in northern Tasmania in rather interesting circumstances by Australian Museum research associate Malta Eback.
2: He was travelling around Tasmania with a friend in 1997. He was going to go to a wildlife preserve. It's along the Gun Plains, which is sort of in the north-western part of Tasmania. And as he did so, he just sort of stopped over on the road to to go to the toilet. He really needed to go, and he couldn't wait. So he raced into the bush, and as he raced into the bush, he just grabbed onto the nearest rock he could to sort of stabilise himself. And in doing that, uh, uh, the piece of rock came off, and he he held it in his hand and looked at it and thought, oh, that, that looks like a trilobite.
0: Malta brought the fossil, along with a few others, back to the Australian Museum, but because of the lack of extra material, they were packed away without being examined.
2: It was only when Malta mentioned them to me that I sort of pulled them out again and realised that he'd collected a new species.
0: It was a Callamenid species of trilobite from the late Ordovician period, about 440 million years ago. It's a special discovery because they've previously only been found in Europe and North America, which may suggest Australia was somehow connected to these other continents by oceanic currents.
2: We want to give this species a unique name. and So Malta and I sat down, scratched our heads and we went, well, what can we name it that would be unique? Both of us ended up saying, well, we're both fans of Doctor Who, how about we name it after Doctor Who? <laughs> And so hence we gave it the species name Bakeri after Tom Baker.
0: What does the discovery of the trilobite tell us about biodiversity on the planet?
2: Well, what it tells us is that biodiversity has both increased over time, but also that Australia has been underrepresented, particularly from that period in time, in the Ordovician period. It's likely that Australia has been underreported probably because a lot of the time, Australia just hasn't had that as number of paleontologists that other nations have had, like, for example, the US or, or the UK. And so because of that, it means that the diversity that's often given for Australia is relatively low compared to the rest of the globe. But in fact, what this triabyte shows is, is that it probably is much higher than people expect. It's just underreported.
0: Patrick, what does it feel like to have discovered a whole new species?
2: it's a great honor to have discovered new species one of the privileges i suppose is that you get to name those species and it's something that i've as i've grown older myself and named more and more species i take with more and more reverence because you can see the importance in it as some of those species become very useful in things like for example telling the ages of rock or being useful for identifying particular environments because the names become synonymous with those indicators and so it really is a privilege and i see it as a scientist to be able to name new species
0: The work of the Australian Museum Research Institute could not be done without the support of donations via the Australian Museum Foundation. Please consider contributing to the museum's world-leading science by going to australian.museum/foundation. All donations over $2 are tax deductible. This is the last episode of the first season of Explore. We really hope you enjoyed it. We'd love to hear from you. Please give us a shout on the Australian Museum socials. And we'll see you for season two later in the year. I'm Alice Gage, editor of Explore magazine. This episode was produced by myself and Cassandra Steith. It was edited by Bernadette fung and mixed by Veronica Rasner. Our music was written and performed by Freya Burkout. Thanks for listening.